Now, for those who don't know or remember, Paul's main purposes for writing to the Philippians had been to encourage and update them regarding his circumstances as a prisoner in Rome, as well as to command them to live lives worthy of the gospel. In chapter 1, Paul comforts the Philippians with the news that his imprisonment has actually served to advance or spread the gospel. He goes on to encourage them to stand firm and united despite those who oppose them. In chapter 2, he writes to strengthen their unity by teaching them of the importance of humility and self-sacrifice in service to others. He ultimately points them to Christ Jesus and his willing sacrifice on the cross for their sake. The Philippians were to follow Christ's example and be humble and obedient, being diligent to live lives that reflected their status as redeemed people, being satisfied in God, being blameless and shining like lights in the world. Chapter 2 then ends with Paul informing them of his plans to send his partners Timothy and Epaphroditus to them, all the while teaching them about the value of being committed to working for God and how they ought to honor those who risk their lives for the gospel. So everything up to this point has been either Paul reporting on his current situation or commanding the Philippians on how they were to live with regards to things like humility, unity, and obedience to God. But now in chapter 3, we see a third reason why Paul wrote to the Philippians. The Philippian church was being threatened by a serious doctrinal error. And so Paul writes to them a serious warning. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This morning we're going to explore this threat to the Philippian church, as well as the truths that Paul uses in order to combat it. So let's examine now just what Paul was warning the Philippians about. Now, Paul in this portion of scripture never directly states who is threatening the church at Philippi. He doesn't call any names, either names of individuals or names of groups. But what he does do is use some very strong language to describe those who are threatening the church. He calls them dogs, evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. Now from that last descriptor in verse 2, those who mutilate the flesh, it should become clear to you just who Paul is talking about. I found that coming to this realization is easier depending on which Bible translation you use. I think it's easiest when reading the New American Standard Bible, which, instead of saying, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, says, beware of the false circumcision. So right away we see that this threat that Paul is warning them about had to do with circumcision, and the falsehood that in order to be a Christian and saved from your sin, you needed to be circumcised. Those who taught this more broadly held that Christians, whether Jew or Gentile, were to keep the entire Mosaic law. So Paul wrote to warn the Philippians of this dangerous false teaching. This idea that salvation could only be obtained by mixing belief in Jesus with strict adherence to the works of the Mosaic law was in direct opposition to the truth that salvation was by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Thus the righteousness necessary to make one acceptable in God's sight comes to a man from God by faith alone in Christ and not by a man's own works of the law. So essentially, chapter 3 verses 1 to 11 is Paul's argument that the righteousness which comes from faith in Christ is superior to the righteousness that comes from the law. So that's the main idea we're going to explore this morning. The righteousness that comes from faith in Christ 
is superior to the righteousness that comes from the law. Now to help us understand this issue, uh, let's briefly take a look at the significance of circumcision and get a little background and context for the false teaching surrounding it. Note that this text in Philippians isn't specifically about circumcision. Rather, this text deals more generally with the idea of law-keeping as a means for attaining righteousness. But since circumcision was so central to the false teaching that Paul was combating, I think it would be helpful for us to examine it. So, turn with me your Bibles to Genesis 17, where the covenant of circumcision was first instituted. And so, from verse 1 of Genesis 17, we read, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you, throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you, and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you, and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. <clears throat> So we see that circumcision, circumcision, which is the cutting off of the foreskin of the penis, was instituted and commanded by God for the offspring of Abraham. And its purpose, as verse 11 informs us, was to serve as a sign of the covenant made between God and Abraham. And so serious was the sign of this covenant that God warned that any male who was not circumcised would be cut off from the people for having broken the covenant. In other words, even though you were born into Abraham's family, you would not be recognized as being part of the family if you were not circumcised. None of the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob could be said to be yours. And as far as being born into the nation and people of Israel, you would be deprived from partaking in the civil, religious, and ceremonial privileges of the people of God. So you could forget about being ceremonially clean as for the Old Testament law. You couldn't partake in any of those rites. Forget about taking part in the Day of Atonement or the Passover or any of that. Without circumcision, you would be outside of the covenant people of God. And it's clear that God took this issue very seriously as we see in Exodus 4, verse 24. Hundreds of years after the covenant was made with Abraham, God commanded Moses to return to Egypt from his exile in Midian. 
And the scripture says that while Moses was on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Apparently Moses neglected to circumcise his own son. Well, Moses' wife uh, performs the circumcision and so God spares Moses' life. But the point was made. God takes adherence to his commands regarding the covenant very seriously. Now, jump forward hundreds of years later to the time of the apostles. As the gospel begins to spread to the Gentile or non-Jewish people, we begin to see the influence of a group who would come to be known as the Judaizers. And that's a term that seems to have been coined by Paul in Galatians 2. Now, to Judaize basically means to adopt Jewish customs and rituals or to imitate the Jews. It means the same thing as when we say that Barbadians have become Americanized through the influence of American media and such like. We consume so much of their music, movies and TV shows that we begin to act like them and dress like them and so on. So the Judaizers were a group who expressed belief in Jesus as Savior, but who went about teaching that in order to be saved, a person must follow all Jewish customs and adhere to Mosaic law. Basically, you had to become a Jew. And perhaps the most significant part of becoming a Jew, as I mentioned earlier, was that if you were a male, you needed to be circumcised. So the Judaizers pushed this issue as a top priority. To them, no uncircumcised male could be said to be part of God's people without bearing the sign of the covenant in their flesh. So now as Paul writes his warning to the Philippians, he isn't doing anything new. The issue of the Judaizers' teaching had been raised already, and as a matter of fact, was the reason for the calling of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. So let's also turn there briefly and see what it says. Acts 15, starting from verse 1, reads, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, 
Listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. <clears throat> so we can see that this issue was a settled issue from the very early years of the church. Adherence to the Mosaic law was not required for salvation. Now the covenant had come, now the new covenant rather, had come into effect. And the sign of this new covenant, rather than being circumcision in the foreskin, would be circumcision in the heart. A heart having been cleaned and indwelt by the Holy Spirit himself. But despite this being a settled issue, nearly a decade later, when Paul is writing to the Philippians, we see that this is still an issue. It seems that the Judaizers continue to spread their false doctrine. This should tell you something about the profession of faith made by these men. After all, the apostles had spoken. Those with whom Jesus vested the authority to teach and set doctrine had made a clear and decisive ruling on the matter and the Judaizers rejected that ruling. Jesus said that those who belong to him keep his commands and submit to his authority. These Judaizers refused to do so. So it's evident that the Judaizers were outside of the kingdom of God. But to make matters worse, this particular falsehood that they spread was of the kind that keeps others out of the kingdom as well. I want you to understand that this is not an insignificant issue. What people believe about this has eternal consequences. If you say that you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but also believe that in order to be saved you need to keep the Mosaic Law, then you have no salvation. I'm going to fully explore this more in a few minutes, but just know that this is the reason why Paul uses such strong, hard language when referring to these Judaizers. Dogs, evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. He doesn't say, oh, well, they're well-meaning brothers who are just a little misguided. No. Paul wants us to be in no doubt as to the seriousness of teaching that works of the law are required for salvation. Look again at the language Paul uses in Philippians 3, verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Now in our culture, if you heard someone call someone else a dog, you would need some context to help you determine whether or not this was an insult or a term of endearment. <laughs> but in Paul's time and context, calling someone a dog had a specific meaning. You see, during the first century, dogs were essentially uh, wild scavengers who roamed the streets. You see, they were seen as filthy and unclean. So for the Jews, the term dog was their, was their preferred term to refer to the Gentiles. Because just as dogs were considered filthy and unclean, so the Gentiles were considered filthy and unclean. 
And in a sense, this was true. As they did not have the rituals given in the Mosaic law by which they could be deemed ceremonially clean. And so being non-Jews, they were outside of the covenant community of God's people. Now I'm sure that many Jews over the millennia have used the term dog as an insult to Gentiles. They say it out of sinful pride and hatred for those who are not Jews. But we need to recognize that, it, that calling a Gentile a dog isn't necessarily a term of abuse, or neither necessarily has it always been used as an insult. And here's a prime example. When Jesus went to Tyre and Sidon, a Canaanite woman came crying after him to drive a demon out of her daughter. Now what did Jesus say to her? And remember, Jesus can never be rightly accused of sinful pride or being insulting and cruel. Jesus said to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Jesus basically, Jesus basically told her, Listen, I came to earth to deal specially with the Jews. Helping you would be like taking the good gifts that belong to the people of God and throwing it to the dogs. But here's the point that I want us to notice. Neither Jesus nor the woman took it as an insult but as a religious statement. Because the woman replies, Yes, it is, Lord. In other words, Yes, Lord, you are right that I am not a Jew. But, she then says, Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. The woman understood what Jesus was saying about her status and replied that even those who are not descended from Abraham by blood can be blessed because of him. Even she who is unclean and outside of God's old covenant people can be blessed because of Jesus, the seed of Abraham. And we know the rest. Jesus commends her faith and heals her daughter. So all of that to say this. When Paul calls the Judaizers dogs, he isn't being insulting, but making a statement that even though the Judaizers were Jews, it is they who were outside of God's people. The great irony that Paul is expressing is that in trying to Judaize or make the Gentiles live like Jews, these Jews had themselves become like Gentiles, filthy, unclean, and outside of God's covenant people. Because they had rejected true salvation, which comes only by faith in Jesus. They rejected true salvation that comes apart from works of the law. The next bit of strong language we see is that Paul calls them evildoers. The seriousness of their sin comes across here as well, as Paul basically asserts that the deeds of the Judaizers were in fact evil. This too is ironic because the Judaizers placed great value upon their righteous deeds. Remember these people believed that by keeping the Mosaic law, they could obtain a righteousness which would earn them salvation. But, but Paul calls them evildoers. In trying to earn their salvation by works of the law, they were in fact doing evil. So again, this is strong language that clearly shows the Judaizers' doctrine to be in error. It is evil to perform good works in the hopes that those good works can pay for your debt and earn you a place in heaven. When you think that you are doing good, you are actually doing evil. You're placing your trust for salvation in yourself and your own ability while rejecting the provision that God has already made in Christ. 
Jesus did not endure 33 years of life on this sin-plagued earth, being rejected and slandered and ultimately nailed to a cross and murdered so that you could say, Nah, Jesus, I'm good. I see what you're offering, but it's cool. I can do it myself. You didn't need to do all that. I can make it to heaven on my own. That's sin. It's evil. If this is your approach to righteousness, then Paul says you are an evildoer. And the last bit of strong language used by Paul in referring to the Judaizers is those who mutilate the flesh. Now I mentioned before that this refers to circumcision. What becomes clear when we look at the original Greek is that the word Paul uses is not the usual one for circumcision. The usual Greek word for circumcision used in verse 3 is peritome, and it means to cut around. And that makes sense when you consider just how a circumcision is performed. But in verse 2, Paul uses the word katatome, which means to cut off or cut down. So this is why the ESP translates it as, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Because this is what the Judaizers were actually doing. While they believed themselves to be doing righteousness and encouraging Gentile converts to display the sign of belonging to the offspring of Abraham, what they were actually doing was mere mutilation of the body. Rather than being a holy sign, it was sinful self-harm. Again, Paul leaves us in no doubt as to the futility of law-keeping as a means of earning salvation. To insist that circumcision is necessary for salvation, now that Christ has already come, is to insist that people mutilate and disfigure themselves. And to insist on the keeping of the Mosaic law, now that Christ has already come, is to insist that people mutilate and disfigure the gospel. It takes a saving gospel and cuts off its power and turns it into a false gospel that has no power to save. A gospel that teaches that you need to do good deeds and believe in Jesus in order to be saved is a false gospel. This is because you can't mix the requirements of the old covenant with the requirements of the new. Otherwise you ruin the new covenant. This is what Jesus meant when he said you can't put new wine into old wineskins. You will lose the precious wine when the old wineskin bursts. The gospel of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, must be kept pure. So now that Paul has identified the threat, he gives his rebuttal to their teaching. Here Paul lists two characteristics of those who are the true covenant people of God. He says in verse 3, For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So, no longer is it those who are biologically descended from Abraham, or those who keep the Mosaic law, or those who are circumcised who are exclusively God's people. Paul asserts that the true sign of being in a covenant relationship with God is not circumcision or the other things that the Judaizers insisted on, but rather the true sign is those who have the Holy Spirit and value Christ Jesus above all else. Firstly, the Judaizers insisted that worship to God be done according to the Mosaic Code, consisting of the various festivals and rituals and sacrifices. And that worship take place at the geographic location of the temple in Jerusalem. But just as Jesus told the woman at the well, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here 
when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The festivals, rituals, and sacrifices in the Mosaic Law were a shadow of what was to come. And now that Christ Jesus had come, those things were fulfilled and no longer to be observed. Now the people of God would be his temple, as the Holy Spirit indwelt them and empowered their worship. And secondly, the Judaizers insisted that it was their observance of the law in conjunction with the sacrifice of Jesus that saved them from sin. Thus their reason for boasting would be split between what Christ had done for them and what they had done for themselves. But the problem with this is that you can't have both. Either you are 100% saved by Jesus' righteousness or you are 100% saved by your own righteousness. There's no 50-50 split. Listen, it's not even a situation where Jesus does 99% of the work and you just need to put in that extra 1%. It's all or nothing. That's why Paul says that we as the true people of God glory or boast in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The Judaizers believed that they could take some credit for their salvation, and so naturally would have felt reason to boast in themselves. But as we heard from that quote in Ephesians, we have no reason to boast in ourselves with regard to our salvation. We can only boast in Christ, because he has accomplished everything for us. So you see, it's not belief in Jesus and our righteous deeds that save us. There's nothing mixed in with faith in Christ. Christ's work on our behalf was sufficient. There's nothing more needed to complete it. To add anything to Christ's work, such as our own works, like circumcision or any such thing, is to deny its sufficiency. Paul says that we, as the true people of God, recognize this, and so our focus is on Jesus and Jesus alone. He alone is the reason for our exultant joy when we consider our salvation. Thus we put no confidence in the flesh. That is, we put no confidence in that which we could do in our own power. So what this means is that all the things that people lay hold to, that, that they think it makes them special before God, like their upbringing, their possessions, education, traditions, natural qualities and talents, it's all irrelevant before God. Those things that the flesh or our natural abilities can accomplish earn us no favor with God. <coughs> Only Christ and what he has accomplished for us matters. And so believing this is what marks a true believer. We glory only in Jesus and place no confidence in ourselves. Now, Paul's teaching on this matter was to be accepted by all since he was an apostle. Therefore, it would be true to say that because Paul had the credentials of an apostle, his teaching wasn't mere opinion. Elsewhere in his letters, Paul does indeed draw attention to his credentials as an apostle in order to defend his right to command the churches regarding matters of truth. But I want us to notice here that Paul doesn't depend solely on his credentials as an apostle in order to give force to his teaching. Rather, Paul finds it more effective here to point to his other credentials, that is, 
his credentials as a former Pharisee. Paul used to be a member of the religious group that strictly followed Jewish tradition. The same group that killed Jesus. So remember I said at the outset that this portion of scripture is about the righteousness which comes from faith in Christ being superior to the righteousness that comes from the law. Well, Paul aims to show this to be the case by pointing to his own rejection of the righteousness which comes from the law in favor of the righteousness which comes from faith in Christ. So he highlights his rejection of his Pharisee background to show how much better faith in Christ is. And so this is the main thrust of verses 4 through 11. And the way that Paul develops this point is by first showing that if anyone on earth could be confident in their ability to earn salvation by their works of the law, it would be him. If there was anyone who could boast in his own righteousness and depend upon it for salvation, and depend upon it enough to be acceptable to God, it would be him. Yet, Paul regarded his own righteousness as worthless for salvation and sought instead to claim to, to Christ's righteousness. In order to really understand the point Paul is making here, we first need to understand just how impressive Paul's Jewish credentials were. Look at verses 4 through 6. Paul says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So let's break down what Paul is saying here. One, Paul was circumcised according to the covenant that God made with Abraham. Thus, he met this most basic requirement of being identified as one of God's old covenant people. Two, he was an offspring of Israel, that is, the man Jacob. So he came through the line that God specially chose, rather than being born of Ishmael's line or Esau's line. And three, he was a Benjaminite, a member of one of the elite tribes of Israel, since the tribe of Benjamin, along with Judah, remained loyal to the Davidic dynasty when the nation split in two in 1 Kings. And four, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That is, he was born to Hebrew parents and maintained the Hebrew, maintained the Hebrew tradition and language even while being raised in the pagan city of Tarsus. And five, he was a Pharisee, holding to the strict observance of the law of Moses, even holding to all the various man-made laws that we read of Jesus denouncing in the Gospels. And six, he wasn't a lukewarm Pharisee. He was extremely zealous. Remember that the first time we hear of Paul, then named Saul, he was consenting to and aiding in the murder of Stephen in Acts 7. He was extremely eager to hunt down and kill those whom he believed to be blasphemers. Thus he went out of his way to find and capture believers in order that they be imprisoned and executed. All of these things, he says, made him blameless with regard to the outward keeping of the law. Now to, now to clarify, Paul is not saying that he possessed the perfection required by God. But his point is that as far as man's standards go, he was seen as righteous and blameless because of his upbringing and his works. So now that we understand just how impressive Paul was as a lawkeeper, we can understand the significance of what he says next. He says from verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, 
I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, Paul was a man at the pinnacle of achievement when it came to the righteousness that comes from the law. But he gave up all of his achievements and no longer ascribed any worth to them. The high status that Paul had as a strict law keeper makes his abandonment of that status all the more significant. I want you to imagine that there's a man who, after working his entire life, had become very wealthy. And all of his wealth was in one particular currency. But then someone comes along and says to him, Listen, that currency that you have is worthless. When you need it most, it's going to fail you and you'll be unable to pay your debts. But I can help you. I'll give you my wealth in a superior currency. But first, you need to gather all of your old currency together in a heap and burn it like trash. Now you can imagine that the man might be apprehensive and even unwilling to give up all of his hard-earned riches. Whereas it may be easy for a poor man to give up what little he has in return for a vast fortune, the rich man has more to lose. But when the rich man does give up his own hard-earned wealth in exchange for a superior wealth that he himself did not earn, you see that that conveys just how much better the new currency is. When the rich man goes as far as to regard all of his former wealth as garbage and throw it in a heap, set it on fire and watch it burn down to dust and ash. All of this in order to obtain the new currency. That's when you realize the surpassing worth of the new currency. And so you see, this is why Paul takes the time to list his credentials as a lawkeeper. So that by his abandonment of them, we could recognize just how much more valuable it is to possess the righteousness that comes from faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from doing works of the law could never compare. Because even the most righteous person, according to man's standards, is not good enough in God's eyes. This is why Paul refused to have a righteousness which came from himself and his own deeds. Because he knew that all of his righteous works were like filthy rags before a holy God. Paul knew he needed a perfect righteousness instead. The righteousness which comes by faith in Christ. And this is the heart of the gospel that we preach. That a sinner can be declared righteous by God through believing that God the Son took the form of a man and lived the perfect life and died in his or her place. Scripture says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is the means by which true and perfect righteousness comes. It doesn't come from within us by the works that we do, but it comes from outside of us by faith in Christ. It can't come from within us because we're corrupt. So it must come from outside of us. It must come from Christ. Also notice that as far as salvation is concerned, the righteousness that comes from the law is absolutely worthless. This is made clear with verses 10 and 11. In these verses, Paul teaches us why he abandoned his own righteousness for Christ's righteousness. He says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, 
becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, if Paul could have attained eternal life by his own deeds, it wouldn't have been necessary to abandon them for Christ's righteousness. But we see that it was necessary. So the implication here is that one cannot be resurrected from the dead and have eternal life without the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And furthermore, what this means is that the righteousness which comes from your own efforts is worthless. It has to be. Think about it. What profit is it to you to work for a righteousness which is utterly useless for paying your debt to God? What profit is it to you to work for a righteousness which is utterly useless from saving you from his wrath? Sure, your own righteousness may gain you some benefits in this life, like praise from other people. But what good is it to be seen by other sinners as an upstanding person when your sins haven't been forgiven by God? Both you and the people who never care to try to do good will end up in the same place. There's no gain to be had in holding on to your own efforts when after everything is said and done, you end up suffering the second death, eternal torment in hell. In order to have eternal life, one has to abandon their efforts to please God and trust only in what Christ has done on their behalf. Do like Paul and seek to have a share in Christ's sufferings. Having a share in Christ's sufferings is like having a share in a company. You have, to, you have access to the rights and privilege of a, privileges of a shareholder in that company. And so Paul is explaining to us that faith in Christ grants us access to the rights that the man Christ Jesus won with his obedience and sacrifice. He was perfect. We are not. We can't access those rights with the inferior righteousness that we produce when we try to keep the law. You need the righteousness from God that grants you a share in Jesus' death. So that just as he died, we die to sin and its power over us is broken. And just as he rose from the dead, so we rose to newness of life in Christ and will one day rise physically to eternal life. Observance of the law could never produce this result for sinners like us. The law is good, but its standards are too high and our sin too deeply rooted. The law was never meant to be the means by which men seek justification from God. Paul told us in Galatians 3 that the law is a tutor or guardian that leads us to Christ and shows us our sin so that we recognize our complete and total depravity our overwhelming inability to do good and please God. And finally, so that we recognize our need for a Savior, our need for Jesus the Christ. Now some will argue, doesn't the Bible say that faith without works is dead? How then can you say that works are worthless? Well, I didn't say that works were worthless. I qualified the statement that works are worthless with regard to earning us eternal life. Certainly works or good deeds have their place. After all, Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But we must be careful to recognize the purpose of good works in the life of the believer. Good works are the fruit that we bear, whereby it might be evident that we have been saved. So once a person has been saved, not as a result of their good deeds, but as a result of the free gift of God by faith in Christ, Good works serve as the proof that salvation has occurred. Good works do not cause salvation, 
but show that the transformation that comes with salvation has indeed taken place. This is the correct meaning of James' statement that faith without works is dead. If you claim to have a saving faith in Jesus, but your life isn't marked by the righteousness expected from a child of God, then you don't really have the faith that you claim to have. So finally, this is the danger that Paul is warning the Philippians about in chapter 3. Look out for those who teach that the works of the law are necessary for salvation. Beware of those who deny that salvation is a free gift that we could never earn nor contribute to. We need to take Paul's warning just as seriously as he did. Remember that the souls of men and women are at stake. There's grave danger in this false doctrine. Therefore, it must be called out when we encounter it. And that's certainly the main takeaway from this text. But while we are on the lookout for this falsehood around us, we must be aware that it can at times be found within us. This is because works-based systems of religion appeal to sinners like us. We like to think that we can be good enough on our own. Pride drives us to seek after our own righteousness. Pride drives us to say, we don't need God. Even if you think that that could never be said of you as a Christian, be aware that we often think and therefore act as if we don't need God. Let me show you just how easy it is for us to fall into this way of thinking. And I'm sure that we can all relate to this. Have you ever sinned against God and then felt utterly disgusted by what you've done? And then you metaphorically dust yourself off and then you say to yourself, I've done wrong, but I'll make it up to God. I'm going to go help my wife or my spouse wash the dishes. Or I'm going to go read my Bible. Or I'm going to go do something to make myself feel spiritual. I'm going to go do some good deeds and make things right with God. That's sin. That's you thinking that by doing good deeds, you can make up for the sin you've committed. In that moment, you are no different from the people who openly say that you must be circumcised to be saved. It's the same works-based way of thinking at the root of it all. You're still attempting to gain God's favor by your deeds. It's so very easy for even we who know that truth to fall into this way of thinking. Now what you should do after having sinned is dust yourself off and say, I have done wrong. But Jesus has already paid for my sin by his death on the cross. His sacrifice was sufficient. I am already justified in God's sight by faith. And I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. In light of this, I will flee from sin and seek to do righteousness. Not because these deeds will save me or because God will love me more, but because I am a child of the light and that is what a child of the light does by nature. This is how we think, this is how we ought to think rather as believers if we affirm the truth that the righteousness which comes from faith in Christ is superior to the righteousness which comes from the law. We need to recognize the danger of thinking that our own righteousness can save us or earn us any favor with God. We need to be aware of where we find this false doctrine in our lives so that we can combat it, so that we can root it out of our minds. Remember that Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Remember that we sinners love to boast. We love to glorify ourselves. 
And so God has made it so that salvation only comes when you humble yourself and let go of all your futile efforts to save yourself. Come to God like a child in weakness, seeking to lay hold of Christ. To trust alone in God and what He has provided rather than seeking to make a way for yourself. The righteousness that comes from God, Christ's righteousness, is far superior to the righteousness that comes from the law. Far superior to that righteousness which you could produce on your own. So seek to lay hold of Christ and trust in Him alone for salvation.